0: Welcome, everyone, to another Crisis Conversation live from the Better Life Lab. Today, we're going to be talking about elder care, long-term care. We have this aging population. We're going to have this uh, elder care boom and a a crisis. And the pandemic has just brought it crashing center stage. And so now we're talking about how we're not prepared, how the nursing home population makes up less than 1% of the United States population, and they make up a disproportionate share of the fatalities from COVID-19. We're gonna be talking about home health. Uh, That's what we're focusing on today, which was seen as an answer to nursing homes. And that's uh, an incredibly difficult job. Most home health workers make uh, very little money. They are sort of the working poor in many ways, Um, don't have access to benefits or paid vacation or paid sick time. And yet, we've, what we're focusing on today is that it's very different in one place, and that's Washington State. And so what I'm excited about today is that we'll be talking about a real challenge, but through the lens of a place that's really working hard to try to figure it out and maybe has lessons for all of us. So what I want to do is start with Brittany Williams. Tell us your story. Tell us uh, about being a home health worker where, where you are in Washington.
1: Yes. So, hi, everybody. My name is Brittany Williams, a home care worker in Seattle, Washington. I work as an agency care provider and also as an individual provider. I've been doing this for six years now. I also mm-hmm. serve on our executive board for our union. Yeah.
0: So, Brittany, if we could, if I could interrupt you for just a second, um, where are you? Uh, you're sitting outside. Can you ta- tell us a little bit about where you are right now?
1: So, right now, I'm at one of my client's with one of my clients right now Um, she allowed me this time because she knew how important it was to share this story and so I'm actually on the balcony of her apartment complex and I just I'm very grateful for her because you know it's uh, clients like her who are supporting caregivers to make sure that not only the clients are protected but we are protected as well
0: so you've been in, in Washington state for about, you know, a couple of years, you were saying. Um, and one of the things that really struck me when we were talking before is that there's a fairly decent wage uh, and you have some benefits that home health aides and care care workers in other states simply do not have. Can you talk a little bit about that and what
1: that means? So I'm a third generation caregiver and my mom and grandma does the same job in Arkansas where there are no unions for caregivers they're up here we have a we won a, a starting wage for $15 for caregivers. They don't have that. We have health insurance um for caregivers. They don't have that. We have the first in a lifetime retirement plan for caregivers. We wow. we provide our caregivers with a free parachute. These are things that Arkansas caregivers don't get.
0: So when you talk to your mom and and your and your grandmother and you talk about what you know your situation there um, you know, kind of what do they what do they think or what do they say? How do they react to the fact that you have sort of the beginnings of decent work, if you will, decent and dignified work?
1: The conversation is more with my mom because my mom actually uh, used to live here. And so when she moved back home to help my grandma with the clients down there, she literally went from almost $20 an hour back down to $11 an hour. And it was really wow. heartbreaking to her to see the conditions that people are accustomed to working in.
0: Peter, let me go to you. So uh, Peter, I want to make sure I get your... Uh, Title correctly. You're with the Catholic Community Services of Western Washington. You're the director of long-term care. Um, So you've just heard from Brittany. So you know she there in Washington State. She makes a fairly decent wage. She gets uh, paid time off. She has retirement. She has health insurance. She has paid training. Um, You know that there's a really a very unique relationship between management and um, the sort of the private sector as well as the the state. You tell us more about Washington state and, uh, you know, and if it, if it's so terrible in Arkansas and other places, how did, how did things get better in Washington state?
2: It's, uh, I would say it's a 40 year overnight success story because this has been worked <laughs> on, uh, for 40 years, the department of social and health services, uh, the governmental entity that interacts with, uh, the feds, um, have taken the lead for 40 years, um, Constant tinkering. They've worked with um, nonprofit associations, with unions, um, and in our state, for our clients, we offer very similar services. In many respects, the same as what you see in a nursing home. Many clients are bed bound. They mm-hmm. need toileting, bathing, transfers. Um, they have a, they have to have a high level of need to even get on the program. It's one-on-one care. It's also a fraction of the cost of nursing homes. So it's something people want. It's, it offers, uh, I, I think, some pretty good employment opportunities, as Brittany had mentioned. And it's also much cheaper. We were set up really well to weather the pandemic because our caregivers, as Brittany can attest to, infection control is drilled into our heads. They have to become a certified home care aide. And you actually have to have pass a skills test, which includes proper hand washing. So when all of this Mm -hmm. came up, um, we simply sent a um, a memo to all of our staff saying, remember what you're doing, keep on doing it. Um, And our partnership with DSHS, um, I can't say enough about them. They have been incredibly nimble. Uh, Most times the government gets a a black eye for being a a giant bureaucracy, but they've been very nimble, uh, very precision-like on what they've been doing. They informed us right away when there was deaths in the nursing home. I think it was 10 o'clock at night, all 50 home care agencies were notified. Almost immediately, we changed things around and and stopped in-person assessments in home visits with the clients. We stopped taking clients to the store, which I know a lot of our folks that we served did not like, Um, but just like a lot of things, (laughs) a lot of things that we're doing, nobody likes it, but we have to do it. Anyway, we asked caregivers to take their temperature before they go in, to ask the client their temperature and at the beginning, mm-hmm. I think everybody thought they had it. The most important thing DSHS did was uh, allow, I mean, most folks um, are working from home. Our caregivers can't work from home, except right. they change the rules to allow uh, our caregivers to do things like do welfare checks, to call up clients, maybe do their laundry, maybe um, do things as much as they can, possibly from their own home.
0: Let me go back to you, Brittany. Um, so Peter said that because there is this training, because you've got these this sort of management and and labor relationship in Washington State, everybody was pretty much up to speed. So what was that like for you transitioning from regular care into the pandemic? You know, did you feel ready? And then did you all get the 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 protective gear that you needed? You know, what was that like in terms of protecting your own health so that you could also protect others?
1: Well, across the board, yes we were already knowledgeable on how to protect ourselves. Like uh, Peter was saying, we've been trained. We actually, every year we're required to go back and take 12 more hours. So we were up to (laughs) part on that. Now, on and as far as the agencies have been amazing across the board, as I say, I sit on the executive board. So I'm able to see what each agency is doing and they've been, Amazing! I wish that the people at the federal level could run the government like our agencies have been stepping <laughs> up to the ball plate. Um, yeah. On the IP side, it was it was a whole it's a whole nother game. <laughs> um, sad to say, it took the state two weeks before they even acknowledged that we needed face masks for oh, the um, independent caregivers, the IP caregivers. They have slowly but surely started to roll out face masks to all the IPs. Um, the agency I work for, they, like I said, they're they're just like Peter's agency. They stepped up, they made sure we had face masks. No, it wasn't a lot, but they did what they what they could and and, and just they've been building up on it to now that you get a full PPE bag, which consists of face masks, hand sanitizers, um, a bar of soap, paper towels, disinfectant spray to clean down surfaces and stuff. So this is what it looks like.
0: Wow. Well, thank you, Brittany. All right. So now, Stephen, let me bring you in at this point. Stephen Campbell. So you're with PHI, where you really research these elder care and long-term care issues. You've just written a report. I put the link of to it into the chat. Uh, and it's, it's called We Can Do Better. So what I'd love for, for you to talk about now, we've had Brittany and Peter talk about their experience in, in Washington state. And even Brittany saying she wished the federal government was as effective as the state government, which is you know, we've got so many people who like, love to hate on, the, on on government and public policy. So here you've got people saying great things about how the government works. Can you put Washington State in this larger perspective? What is it that we're facing as a country? Uh, how are we facing it or not? And and kind of where does Washington State and what they're doing, where, where do they stand?
3: In so many ways, Washington State is a national leader in job quality. That's thanks uh, in part, uh, as Peter mentioned, to strong leadership in the state government. And also, as, as Brittany cited there, strong leadership among caregivers uh, in the union, working together with employers in the state uh, to really build these decent, high-quality jobs with effective training and higher wages. Nationally, these things are so lacking. The system is mm-hmm. largely dependent on Medicaid, which, unlike Medicare and Social Security, has to compete with all of these other budget priorities in state legislatures every year. These programs are viewed as as serving uh, people who are living in poverty and people with disabilities who are largely undervalued societally. And often these Medicaid programs are losing those budget battles and not getting the level of investment that they need to support a quality job. But there's another societal aspect to it uh, related to the people who do this work. Caregiving is viewed as part of the uncompensated domestic responsibilities of women. And for these reasons, these jobs are lacking in respect uh, to the extent that they they are deserved. These jobs are often performed by people of color and immigrants who are, again, societally marginalized. And uh, these jobs, again, are undervalued and and undercompensated for those reasons. Uh, And then a a third element to this is that this is a highly fractured system where we've seen this explosive growth in the home care field. And unlike Washington state, many other states might not even know who the agencies are that are delivering these services. So all of these factors Hmm. combined mean that when we're facing this pandemic, all of these challenges are especially highlighted because... We don't have the funding to afford these crucial things like personal protective equipment or training on uh, assisting people during a pandemic or hazard pay or any of the things that workers need to be successful in the field.
0: Let me interrupt you there. You say we can't afford it. And I guess what I'm wondering is, is it a choice that we have chosen not to invest in it? You know, because if we can, (laughs) when you look at the size of the federal government and what we choose to invest in, I guess that's, I I just kind of wanted to interrupt you. Is that really that we don't have the funding for it or we have made the choice that it is not important enough to invest in?
3: That's an important clarification. When I say we, I'm referring largely to employers or to these government agencies who are running these programs. Uh, But again, the lack of funding in the system is reflective of our values and how much we value this work. Despite the fact that these services uh, are so critically important to all of us, because many of us will develop disability at some point in our lives, and if we don't, someone we love will, uh, and at those points in time we're going to have to turn to the the strong paid caregivers like Brittany and others, uh, but because, uh, these jobs are so poorly structured and the system above them isn't supporting them well, it's very likely that when we need those workers the most, we're not going to be able to find them.
0: Mm. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting to listen to all of you, you know, just from a, from a personal perspective, my father, um, the last five years of his life, he passed away not that long ago. He was bedridden. He'd had three strokes, uh, my mother was also, uh, you know, in her late eighties. She couldn't do all of that work, and we relied on in home home health care, uh, you know, in home uh, AIDS. And you know, when he passed away, his final moments, thankfully, my mother was there, but also his his home health aide, Priya from Ghana. So this work is so vital. It helped him have quality of life. It helped him stay alive. And you know, you develop these really intimate relationships and he, and she was there, you know, in his final moments on Earth. So, uh, you know, when you talk about what we value, uh, it's astounding to me that this incredible value is not reflected in our national policy or in our debates, you know, th- th- that this is seen as sort of this invisible labor of love. Um, one thing I'd like to, to bring up at this point, in the last few days, there's been a, sort of an explosion of news. There was a home health aide in New Jersey who now faces criminal charges. Uh, She apparently she tested positive for COVID-19. She went to give care. The elderly person she was taking care of then contracted COVID-19 and passed away. And so now she's facing criminal charges. So, Peter, let me let me go to you. Um, You know, is that a fair response uh, is this a you know is this a, is this a fair thing to to uh, blame on a home health aide? Uh, what does this say about our larger system?
2: Well, it's it's interesting that um, this news is popping up about um, individual uh, home health aides perhaps getting uh, sued or in trouble. When you have the opposite end, which is uh, many of the for-profit nursing home industry um, is they're being exempt from being held accountable uh, from lawsuits and. You've got one group, individual people. All of us through this pandemic, I think our heads were spinning. First, it's one thing; then it's another. Um, it's hard to figure out what um, you know, what all the facts are. But what I do know is, uh, anybody in this business uh, has good communication on what infection control is, what you need to do. So the companies that own these for-profit nursing homes, they're not being held accountable for something that they should know. And yet we are holding mm. individual people accountable. And I find that to be very disturbing.
0: What about what about you, Brittany? Uh, you know, when you heard that news, you know, you're on the front lines there. You know, you, you need to be thinking about your own health, but protecting the people that you also work with. You know, what, what do you think about that? That, uh, you know, the, that a state could charge a home health aid Uh, face criminal charges in a situation like this.
1: I feel that it is very irresponsible. I totally agree with Peter on this biased situation where the nursing homes are getting basically away with murder, but you want to point out caregivers. It has been scientifically proven that people can be asymptomatic, not even know that they have it, and they're walking around. So are you going to tell me, so are they going to tell me now that every single person that comes in contact with another person with COVID is going to be charged or face murder charges? Mm. I think their focus is way off.
0: So, Stephen, uh, let me ask you that that same question, because uh, it is really quite disturbing to see that many of these caregivers, um, they don't have access to something like paid sick days or paid family leave. And so for many of them, if you're asymptomatic, you don't know that you've got the, the virus. Um, many of them, they're, they're like Brittany's mother. They're making poverty wages, really, $11 an hour. And if you don't have access to benefits... You really have to make a choice. Do I do I go to work? Do I stay home? And then how do I pay my bills? And then that does put the people who who rely on the care at greater risk. So it seems like there's something really systemically wrong here.
3: Right. Well, I mean, certainly this the story is is a tragedy, right? I mean, this is a, a death that could have been prevented. Um, but if we're to prevent harrowing situations like that in the future, we need to write ask the right questions. And I don't think the right question is how could this person be so irresponsible to do this without more information. I'm not going to make any sort of blanket statements about who's at fault, but I I think the right questions are, um, so for example, this individual wasn't wearing PPE, the personal protective equipment. Does she have access to personal protective equipment? And if she doesn't, why not? I mean, is her agency not getting the equipment that they need? Maybe this person wasn't aware that they had uh, paid time off available to them, or even if they did, uh, could they trust that their employer was going to respect that right uh, and not commit wage theft? Uh, and also was this individual confident that if she did take time off because of her positive COVID uh, diagnosis, was she confident that someone would be there to take her place in the context of a nationwide workforce shortage when every job seeker is being told it's not safe to leave your home, uh, we're having serious pipeline issues uh, and workforce supply issues that were already happening before. This Mm -hmm. sort of narrative around uh, home care workers and direct care workers as villains in the field, as uh, sort of widespread committers of of fraud and abuse is just not reflective of, of the truth. The predominance of workers in this field are folks like Brittany who are really Uh, in this pandemic laying their lives on the line uh, on behalf of their clients and their loved ones, and they may not have a choice around taking time off because of their own economic instability. Mm -hmm. So there's just so much broader context around these sorts of tragedies that are happening in the field, and if we don't ask those questions around what can we do better, uh, we're not going to make the meaningful changes needed to support both uh, consumers like the person who passed away and workers like the, the person who inadvertently uh, was a conduit for the virus.
0: Brittany, let me go back to you. You talked to your your mother and your grandmother in Arkansas, so you know what the experience of home health workers are in other places. What would you hope that we'll learn out of this pandemic?
1: I really, I, I appreciate Stephen and everything he's saying. And I also wanna make this note so that people will understand caregiving is a job that we have to be there but if we don't have legitimate reason for not being there, we can actually be charged with neglect with our clients. Mm -hmm. This is a job that you cannot leave your clients uncovered. Mm -hmm. So that is one big thing that I feel like should have been put in that news report. Um, The other thing is it is amazing to live in the state of Washington, but at the same time, we got to be better with the process. We have to be more expedient with the process because with one caregiver, I won't say her name, when the PPE finally got to her, it was actually too late. Her and her son had already contracted it. Oh wow! You know they have to go through the process. Um, they're in our prayers and everything, but the thing is, we have to we have to stop just assuming stuff. And and like Stephen said, we have to look at the broader picture. Caregivers are just as important as the frontline workers. You know, the frontline workers are the ones saving life. Caregivers are the ones maintaining life.
0: Mm, That's a beautiful way to put it.
1: Yeah, and as we are maintaining life, it's not fair just to protect the ones saving it. You have to protect the ones maintaining it because we have to go to the stores. We have to go to the pharmacies, the laundromats. We have to go interact with all these places that our clients can no longer go. And you don't know who you're coming in contact with, Bridget. It can yeah. be very scary. And you have so many, like it was said earlier, 80% of our caregivers are, are female. A large chunk of them are people of color. A lot of them are like my grandmother, are in that age group that is more susceptible to getting this disease. And so yeah. we have to just bring a more wider focus that we are the maintainers of life. If you want to know what a caregiver is, that's it in a nutshell. We are the maintainers of life.
0: Well, I love that. That is probably the best place to end this conversation is that we need to be thinking and valuing not only those who save lives, but those like Brittany who maintain lives and those like we had Marilyn Washington last week, who is also a home health aide uh, in in Texas who doesn't have paid sick days. and that what you're doing is incredibly valuable and important work. So I'd like to thank all of the panelists for being uh, on the part of this conversation today. Thank you so much, Brittany, Steven, and Peter. I'd like to also uh, thank my great Better Life Lab team, New America, New America Events, and my producer, David Schulman. We hope you'll join us again next week. We're going to be looking at the Emergency Paid Family and Medical Leave Act that Congress passed and looking at there are some some people who have it and it's really helping their lives and there are people who do not. We'll be exploring that kind of have and have not uh, attention next week. So we hope you'll join us again. Stay healthy and safe. Wash your hands and we'll see you next week.